Dear Father, Father, don't let us forget the mission of this body. I pray that, Father, because in the times that we are now and our growth and our excitement of where we are now and how all that's happening, how easy is it to get our minds off of why we're here and to become distracted, as it were, by the, minis- the business of ministry or the, uh, the pride that can seep in because of what we think we're building, though it's not us that does the building. So, Father, keep us focused here. Keep us on track. Help us understand that you formed us for good reasons that are your own. And even if we don't understand them yet, don't let us substitute others for those reasons. And we ask, Lord, that you would not only uh, give us that insight, that heart to serve you in a genuine, authentic way, based on your word, uh, but that as we do this, as we continue to seek your will and serve here according to your purposes, Father, I pray also that we would learn something in the process, knowing that we have not come to this this effort fully formed and with all our knowledge in place, Father, knowing that we are still imperfect, far from you, and much in need of your counsel and your strength. Let our work here, Father, be something in which as we serve others, we ourselves are being served by you. And to see that, to understand that. Keep our priorities straight, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been in here for a little while, we've been watching something over the last few weeks that I think has been somewhat comical at times. You have the disciples being trained in the ways of the kingdom program by Jesus, and at the same time, they've been struggling to make sense of all that they've been receiving. And it's been, I've been kind of bemused as I study through it, I'm sure you have too, just how could these guys be so out of touch? How could they miss so much? But you know, it's really not that hard to understand why they're, they're struggling, because The lessons that Christ is trying to teach these guys would have been hard for anyone to grasp. Because Jesus is not running some ordinary rabbinical school. And and he's not training these guys just to be another proponent of Pharisaic Judaism. Jesus is a rabbi unlike any other. And his ministry, therefore, is going to be unlike anything else the disciples had ever seen. So what were they going to use as their baseline? How were they to know what it is that they've gotten themselves into? And then add to that the fact that the Lord is preparing these guys to lead a new worldwide movement of God, primarily among Gentiles, which blows their mind when they finally understand that. And all the while they're going to live on the forefront of this spiritual battle for the salvation of the world. This is no small assignment. I don't even know how you would train for somebody to to do this kind of work. I mean, where do you start? Where does a program of preparation for that mission begin? Well, there's two things you have to get straight right up front if you're going to do the kind of work Jesus is calling you to do. Lesson number one, you have to know Jesus is God, and you're not. You have to know that Jesus is the incarnate God, and the disciples had to eventually come to an understanding that they were in the company of the Messiah, the Lord's anointed one. And then the second lesson you have to understand is to appreciate the significance that God came in the form of man to live and to die for us. And at the end of the day, the church is not about miraculously feeding people. It is not about healing people. That is not why the church exists. Those are means to an end. Our mission is to be an ambassador for Christ to save souls, calling men and women to be reconciled to God. That is what the church is about. 
So understanding that Jesus came to bring forgiveness and hope and eternal life to lost sinners is paramount. If they haven't understood that, then all the other lessons about feeding and healing and the like mean nothing. More than that, these guys had to understand that they were going to do what Christ did, that they're going to follow in his footsteps. This is not merely uh, uh, the case in which they're observing him the whole time and they're just going to watch him do all the work. They have to get involved and do it too, certainly after he departs. So just as the Son of God came to seek and save the lost, so will his disciples have to seek and save the lowly and the needy by bringing them the good news. That's the mission. Now, I'm telling you things you know. This is not news to us 2,000 years later. But it was news to them. They didn't see this coming. It was not what they expected. And grasping all of what I just said is a tall order. And so I guess it's understandable, maybe, that these guys were so slow to catch on to what Jesus was saying as he drags them around the Galilee. Last week, though, if you noticed, there was a bit of a breakthrough at least a breakthrough of sorts. Go back for a minute. Look at chapter 16, verse 11, where we were last week, right at the end. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. Let me just reread them. Jesus, speaking to the men, said, How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And then in verse 12, Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So he had just chastised them for their lack of faith and for uh, failing to pay attention to what he had been doing and what he had been saying. And then the final straw, it would seem, was their ignorance over his comment about beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians because we know he was speaking about the dangers of their teaching and all the disciples could think about were the trivial matters of where's my next lunch coming from. And then he corrected them. And then Matthew says they understood You know what? I may be reading too much into this, but I think that was a moment of turn. That's that's our first glimmer of hope. Do you know that's the first time in any of the Matthew's Gospel that he's ever said they understood a thing? This is it. First time. Lights went on. Hallelujah. And the question now becomes, what are they really understanding? I mean, they understood that little moment. Yes, they understood that point. But where is this going? How deeply are they understanding the program that they're now a part of? Have their hearts finally opened up to who he is, what he's doing, and how they're to participate in it? Because if it's not happened yet, when is it going to happen? Well, there's only one way to find out. And so what Jesus does next is he tests their understanding on those two points that I opened with, on lessons number one and two, as I call them. And it starts in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew tells us that they head off to the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, it's well north, northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Present-day border with Syria. It sits at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in all the Middle East. Uh, It's about 9,000 feet high. It runs sort of diagonally northeast to southwest, and that means the southern part of it is actually in the present-day Israel, and the northern end is in Syria. In fact, Damascus sits right at the base of that mountain range further north. So in Jesus' day, that whole region was part of the Roman Empire, and it was all Gentile, much like the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, 
And so Jesus goes up into another Gentile area, far north, and to this place at the base of Mount Hermon, a place called Caesarea Philippi. This area was under the rule of one of Herod the Great's descendants, a man named Herod Philip II. And at the foot of this mountain, there was a little town called Peneus. And Peneus uh, was renamed by Herod Philip as Caesarea in order to honor Caesar. But at the time, there was another city that also went by the name Caesarea. This, this one was on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast, and it was quite prominent. And so people came to call the Caesarea up here at Mount Hermon as Caesarea Philippi, because Philip gave it that name. And they did so to distinguish it from the other Caesarea. All right, so we have these two places, Caesarea Philippi and the Caesarea on the coast. But it's that original name that's of interest. It was Peneus, and that comes from the ancient pagan god called Pan. So Peneus from Pan. Pan is a figure of Greek mythology. Uh, if you want to visualize him, he's depicted in mythology as half man and half goat. From about the waist down, he's a goat. And he was considered the god of nature of outdoors, outdoor areas. And as a result, his followers would engage in wild fertility rituals and other extreme behavior, uh, wild, unchained behavior. In fact, the word panic comes from pan because of this kind of outrageous behavior. And the god Pan had a temple devoted to him at the base of the Mount of Mount Hermon in this area called Peneus in a cave and you can still see the ruins today. I was going to show you some pictures of that, sorry. Uh, scholars scholars have, have assumed that the scene that we're now studying, where, where Jesus has this conversation, must have taken place somewhere near this Pan Temple. Now, the reason they say that is because some of the things he says seem to resonate with the, the grounds, with the area that this uh, uh, temple occupied. But if you look at Mark, I don't think that's actually accurate. I think that's become folklore, kind of a popular way to teach this, this particular moment. But Mark says this conversation took place on the way to Caesarea Philippi. So yeah, if you like to imagine it while he's standing there looking up at the temple and the gates of hell will not prevail. Okay, you can have that imagination. It doesn't hurt, but it's not what happened. Uh, they were just walking on their way to this area. And in any case, Jesus asked his disciples, who do, you, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Now, Mark records the, the question as, who do you say that I am? I don't think that difference is meaningful because obviously Jesus is the Son of Man. So he's basically saying, who do people say that I am? And for the first time with that question, Jesus has acknowledged the elephant in the room, as they say. That is, he has brought up the question of his identity with these disciples. There's no record of him ever asking that question in any other way prior to this moment. And the answers that they offer him here reveal the confusion and the mystery that surrounded his ministry. Because look at the variety of things people are saying. Now, and I want you to remember this as we look at this. Jesus already knew the answer. That is to say, he's not asking this question because he had some kind of curiosity about what are they all saying about me? He totally knows what is being said. Here's why he's asking the question. He's asking this question to find out what the disciples are thinking. That is, which of these views are they going to stand behind? What, what opinion are they going to register as well? And he does it through this kind of oblique method of questioning. What are other people saying about me? And it's really a test of them. And here's what they say. They say, well, those in the crowds are saying that you're the resurrected John the Baptist. Well, you know who principally was responsible for starting that rumor, right? Remember? It wasn't that long ago that John the Baptist died, 
Jesus was told that he had died. And then Herod Antipas, who was the man who killed him, thought that when the word came to him about Jesus' miracles, oh, he said Jesus must be the resurrected John the Baptist. This guy was obviously infatuated with John the Baptist. But that is a ridiculous assumption. Why? Because not long before that, they were both alive at the same time. You can't be the resurrected someone who's still alive. Right? It doesn't make any sense. So it was clearly a ridiculous conclusion. And then there's others saying he was Elijah. Now Elijah is that prophet that's well known for having left the earth in a chariot of fire at the end of his life. And he's also known from Scripture as the man that Malachi says would come back to precede the arrival of the Messiah. And so it was natural for at least some people to assume that Jesus might have been that Elijah coming to announce the kingdom's arrival. But the problem with that one is that John the Baptist was the herald sent to announce Messiah's first coming, and he identified himself as such. But he also said he was not Elijah, that Elijah was still to come. And that means Elijah's return awaits Jesus' second coming. So we can say it this way. As John the Baptist was to Jesus' first coming, Elijah will be for his second coming. So we know that Jesus was not Elijah. And then others were saying Jesus was a resurrected Jeremiah. Now that's a really strange one because the Bible never says that Jeremiah will reappear. The only assumption we can make is that Jeremiah had a ministry that was somewhat like what Jesus' ministry was like. That is, when Jeremiah came... to to Israel. He came at a period in history when a foreign kingdom had conquered Israel and was dominating the capital city of Jerusalem. At that time, it was Babylon. And so now Jesus has come in a time when Rome is in charge. Maybe that's why they thought that they were the same person, but really that's no basis for drawing any connection. In fact, if you think about it, all of these answers are just speculation. I mean, there's nothing grounding us in any of them. People are just saying, Whatever they think of. I mean, at the end of it there, they said, oh, and other prophets are being suggested as well. I mean, for crying out loud, anything was fair game, right? Anybody they could think of. And that's what happens when you're not constrained by Scripture or logic in in some cases. And they ignored, in the meantime, what Jesus was actually saying about himself, about his miracles, uh, about you know the Messianic miracles. They weren't paying attention to that. And for that matter, they ignored what John the Baptist said because he pointed to Jesus as Messiah. And clearly they've ignored Scripture, because their entire book of Scripture points to Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that had been spoken about concerning the Messiah's arrival. So the crowd had all these ideas for who Jesus was, and yet, did you notice the one and obvious alternative that the disciples don't mention? I mean, there were some in the crowd who said, He's the Messiah. How come that one didn't make their list? It's pregnant by its absence. It's, it's, it's conspicuously absent. That is, the disciples seemed to want to avoid saying the obvious. And they looked at every other alternative before they said anything about that. And I think that's why Jesus was asking, him, uh, asking them, what do the crowds say? It was a, an oblique way to let them raise the topic, and none of them had the bravery to do it. None of them, it seems, had the courage to suggest, you know, some are saying you're the Messiah. You know? Is that okay? You know why? Because in Jewish culture, fear of blasphemy was a real thing. Because blasphemy had a penalty of death under the law. And to suggest that someone was Messiah and they weren't is blasphemy under their 
ways of looking at their law. And I think that was a part of this. I think these guys are all kind of holding their breath. Who's going to be the first? Who would dare say it out loud? Let's hope he says it first. And Jesus says, who do they say that I am? Nobody takes the bait. But thank the Lord that he included Peter in this group. Because where others fear to tread, Peter charges ahead. And Jesus forces the men, basically, to enter into this conversation by putting the question to them plainly. Who do you say that I am? It's time to get this on the record, guys. No more hiding. And the text does not describe the scene at that moment, but I like to imagine it a certain way. And I don't know that I'm right, but I like to think that I am at all times. But especially right now, Mark says, as I mentioned earlier, Mark says they were on the way to, their, to Caesarea Philippi. So here's what I imagine. I imagine they're walking as a group. And how do men in a group typically walk? Well, they're not walking all 12 abreast, 13 abreast, right? They're not in a line. They're probably in a gaggle, some ahead of others. Jesus probably in the front, leading them on, right? Everyone kind of looking ahead, maybe to the side when they talk to someone. But it's, you know, they're just moving. And Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? Walk, walk, walk. And I imagine a pregnant pause right about there. I imagine dead silence for a while. Guys just walking. No one wants to be the first. And in the back, behind Jesus, they're exchanging glances. Are you going to say something? Are you going to say something? Who's going to say something? Because they're all avoiding the obvious, and they don't want to risk blasphemy. And here's Peter. Now, I don't know Peter. I mean, no more than you do. But I feel like I know him because I feel like I'm sometimes him. And, you know, if I put myself there as a Peter in this case, Peter senses the awkwardness of the silence. And like Peter, I cannot resist filling silence. And I think Peter started to realize, okay, somebody's going to have to say something. And moreover, and this is the main point, Peter knew the answer. Peter knew what the answer was. And inside him, there was this confidence building that I know this. I mean, it's dangerous to say it, but I know it's true. And surely they all know it too. And maybe he's not understanding why no one else is willing to speak up. Maybe he was thinking, we all knew this, right? And yet no one's saying anything. And then he's embarrassed, not by their silence, maybe, but by his own. His own unwillingness to speak starts to weigh on his heart. I mean, this is all happening in my imagination in a a moment, in in a few seconds, right? Your mind just thinks. And so as the seconds tick by, he just blurts it out. You are the Christ, the Son, the living God. Now, in Greek, here's what he actually said. Because his statement in Greek has a very particular feeling to it that's not evident in the English translation. Because before every noun in that sentence, Peter puts the article, the, which gives it this emphatic kind of tone. So in literal Greek, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. Now, all of those articles inserted in there leave you with this impression that Peter was trying to make a point to someone And I don't think he was trying to make a point to Jesus, because Jesus knows who he is. And if you think Jesus is the Christ, then you don't assume he needs your help understanding it, right? So I think he's trying to make a point to his comrades, and here's the other thing, and probably even to himself. This is the first time Peter let those words escape his mouth, and he wasn't doing it tentatively. He didn't put a question mark on the end of that sentence. He wasn't testing the waters. He was jumping in the waters without a life preserver. He was owning it publicly. 
And he wanted everyone else to know it. And I suspect he was trying to make a little bit of a point to his brethren. That is to say, we shouldn't be hesitant about this, guys. We've seen everything we've seen. We know what we're dealing with here. He is the Lord, the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is one of Peter's finer moments. And of course, he has his share of the other kind, too. But I think this is the moment when Peter assumed the mantle of leadership among the disciples. And I think it's clear from the text that Jesus saw that as well, because Jesus recognizes and confirms Peter's leadership in what follows. But first, what Jesus does is confirm or make clear that Peter's courage and initiative were not his own. Not entirely. Look in verse 17. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bariona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We talked about this a little last week, but Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus says, you heard that right. That is, it was revealed to you. But I want you to look at what Peter said more carefully, and I want you to look at what Jesus said more carefully, because there's something more going on here. Peter just said some very remarkable things. He said, first, Jesus is the Son of God. Do you understand he just introduced the theology of the Trinity? The plurality of a Godhead. And Orthodox Judaism of his day, no different than our day today for that matter, does not acknowledge the Trinity. Jews, Orthodox Jews today would spit at the notion that God is plural in his person. And yet, here's a Jewish man declaring God had a son, spiritually speaking, and Jesus was that son. This is a tremendous leap in understanding. In fact, there's no explanation for it. How do you get to that? How do we ever, how could anyone this side of heaven know how God exists in his form? It's it's impossible. Unless God tells you what his form is, you can't know it. And here he is stating that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, how has Jesus referred to himself up till this point when he has talked about his his person? He's called himself not the Son of God, but what? The Son of Man. That is, acknowledging his humanity while demonstrating his divinity. And yet, in this moment, the response Peter gives is, you are the Son of God in his divinity. He steps forward, and in one statement, he changes the course of Jewish belief, and he establishes a fundamental principle of Christian theology. He affirms not only that he is the Messiah, the promised seed, the one sent by God to end sin and the devil's reign of terror, but moreover, he has said, you are God and a member of the Godhead incarnate in flesh. Fully man, fully God, the Son of God, part of the Godhead. He just said that in very specific terms. He was the first to reach this conclusion. And remarkably, even the Apostle John, who is so well known for his gospel and its prologue, which says that in the beginning was God, and he was with God, and he was God, and we get to know so much about the Trinity just in that opening part of his gospel. But John wasn't the first one to say it. John didn't seem to be the first to come to that understanding. Peter blurts it out. And yes, it's deserving of our admiration, but Jesus goes on to say, yes, you were the first, but you were not operating on your own intellect or reasoning here, Peter. Jesus says Peter was responding to the work of God in his heart, so it was the Father in heaven who revealed this truth to Peter. And we must know, intellectually, logically, you must know that that's how it works. How else could it work? There was no Bible. 
Not to say that that's still not revelation, but I'm saying if you want to think about it mechanically, how could he have ever known this? We have no record of Jesus saying anything about it. It was not foretold in the prophets. There's nowhere in the Bible prior to the New Testament in which the divinity of Christ and his humanity is clearly outlined. Yes, you can see it looking back now, but you couldn't have seen it before it was revealed to you in the New Testament. That is, it wouldn't have made sense. I mean, he just, he comes to this understanding out of the blue, which is why we know it came from the Father. Now, before you consider the significance of this revelation, I want you to notice something about what Jesus said, because I said there was some interesting stuff going on there on his side, too. His response confirms both aspects of Jesus of uh, Peter's confession. Did you see that? In other words, what Jesus said in response proves that what Peter said is true. Because, for example, if when Peter said, you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, if that weren't true... As some critics say, by the way, there are critics who will tell you, wrongly, that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Which is flatly wrong. But if that were true, why wouldn't he have corrected Peter here? Why wouldn't he have said to Peter, oh, come on now, let's not get too out of, go out of hand here, Peter. Let's not go too far here, okay? No, instead, what does he do? He acknowledges his confession as divine revelation. Which clearly means he knew that what Peter said was true. And then secondly... Notice Jesus says where the source of this knowledge came from. My Father who is in heaven, which is an affirmation of the fact that he is the Son of God. He makes the statement to Peter, you've got it right. So he confirms not only that he is Messiah by letting that statement stand unchallenged, he also confirms that he is the Son of the living God, thus confirming the Trinity as we now call it. God in one, but existing in three persons. Notice also Jesus uses Peter's full name as he opens up, Simon Bar-Yonah. Bar means son in Hebrew, and Yonah is Jonah. So we know what Peter's father's name was, Jonah. So Peter's full Hebrew name was Simon, son of Jonah. Why did Jesus start by addressing Peter so formally? Well, because this is an important, solemn moment. This is the turning point in Peter's life, and in some ways the turning point in the ministry Jesus had with these men. He stepped forward and he declared publicly his faith in Jesus as Messiah, his belief that Jesus is the God of the universe incarnate. And as he did, he crossed over a line from which there is never any returning back. That is to say, either Peter was correct, and if so... He has defined the belief that every follower of Jesus after him must confess also. Or he was wrong, in which case he just committed the sin of blasphemy and he would be put to death. That's it. There's two choices right here. And Jesus' response makes that clear, that what he said is true. Jesus says, Peter was blessed, not condemned. You were blessed, Simon Bariona. But more than that, Jesus says Peter's remarkable insight was not his own, but the revelation of the Father to him. So what Peter just said, and here's where we're leading, obviously, what he just said, he could not have said unless the Father in heaven had given him that information. That is, without that information, he would have been clueless like the rest of them. So this was a moment in which the Father chose to let him have this place of prominence, to be in this position to say something that the other men were not yet ready to say. So as we look at this moment, look at it with spiritual understanding. Step back with me for a moment. Look at it from God's vantage point. Scripture is telling you 
that at this moment, as the disciples stood silently, hesitating to answer Christ's question, the Father was at work behind the scenes. And by His Spirit, He put the knowledge of Himself and of Christ, of the truth that Peter just confessed, He put that in Peter's heart. And that truth was burning inside him. He could feel it. It's like it was in there pressing to get out, to make itself known. He knew the truth. He knew he had to share it. And the only thing that was stopping it from coming out of his mouth was that question that Jesus asked. Just the prompting of Christ. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter offered his remarkable answer, blurting it out. Friends, that is how faith works right there. That's how it works in every single heart of every single person who has ever confessed Christ, ever. Now, they don't necessarily use his words. It's not in the same sense of the moment. I'm not saying that. But in the spiritual sense, that's how it works. The knowledge that Jesus is your Savior and that he is God is revealed to you by the Father, by his Spirit. Without that revelation, that knowledge will never come. You will never have that understanding. I don't care how often someone talks to you about him. I don't care how often you read your Bible. I don't care how often you're exposed to the Jesus that we all know. Until the Father puts two and two together in your heart, you'll never make the connection. And no matter how many miracles or signs or wonders someone might do in your presence so as to convince you, it just keeps bouncing off that heart that is incapable of understanding spiritual truth apart from the revelation of the Father. Period. Now on the other hand, Once the Lord places that truth in your heart, as he did here for Peter, it cannot bear to stay inside. It is a truth that we must declare. And once it has taken up residence in our hearts, it is only a matter of time before it is made public. And often what the Lord will do is prompt you in the way that he did here with Peter. And by prompting, I don't mean that the mechanism will always look the same. But that there is a mechanism is my point. That there is a moment. He will move you through circumstances into the moment, like what Peter experienced here, where the question comes your way. And because you know the answer, and because he's been wanting to get out for a while anyway, you're primed and ready. That moment can be called a confession of faith. Call it what we call it. Confession of faith. It's the moment, and this is the best thing I'll tell you all night. It is the moment where faith in the heart makes itself known through a confession of the mouth. And as the two come together in that moment, the truth of God planted in our hearts becomes a truth that we ourselves are prepared to accept. And in the moment that our mouth engages with what our heart knows, the free gift of salvation placed in our heart becomes a gift received and affirmed in our own mind with our words. As Paul says in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then he goes on, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So at some point before this moment that we read about, or maybe just in that moment, Peter received a revelation from the Father to know that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was God. And then Jesus prompts Peter to make the confession that he knew 
already was true, and it just gave him that moment. And that's what's happening all the time. It's whether you call it an altar call or whether it's two people having coffee over a kitchen table, that's what the Lord does. He brings you truth, and then he brings you the moment in which you get to say what you know is now true. And when the two are coming together, that's when salvation has been made evident to that person and to everyone else. Sometimes it's the same moment. Sometimes it's weeks or months apart. In my case, it was weeks apart. I remember specifically how mine happened. That is, I remember the moment I believed in my heart, but I didn't tell anyone. Because the pastor wasn't making an altar call. And he didn't need to. He was teaching Genesis. He was on this. I mean, thank God that the Lord is not dependent on pastors doing altar calls to get people saved. Not that he doesn't use them. It's just that they're not the requirement. So, in that case, I was able to take the knowledge from what I heard, move out of the room, live in that for a while, and in your head and in your heart, it's playing in, inside you, and you're, you're not sure what to do with it. And because you're new at this, because you're a brand new believer or on the verge of belief, you don't know the script. No one gave you the card. Here's how you do this. There is no such thing. You're just experiencing it. But there was still that confession that needed to happen. And so the Lord... The one he starts this process in, he does not fail to complete it. So he knows I needed the confession, and he produces it. I'm at my house one day. I'm I'm by myself that day, as it turned out. And there's a knock on the door. I go to the door. And in my neighborhood, there was this group of men who were going through the neighborhood door-to-door evangelizing. And they knock on the door. And this shiny, smiley guy with a Bible. Hey, brother, if you died today, where would you be? And I said... Well, I know I'd be, I'd be in heaven. Why do you believe that? Because the Lord Christ died for me and he paid the penalty for my sin and because that, I believe in that, he'll accept me because of his righteousness, blah, blah, blah. I, I stammered through something. And when I was done with my confession, the guy kind of smiled even more and said, well, praise the Lord, brother. Have a good day. <laughs> I can still remember him. Chipper, chipper little guy. But here's the thing I remember. I remember closing the door And it's like somebody said something in the room. As soon as I closed it, the thought in my mind was, that was my confession. That was the moment God brought me to confession. What did it require? A question. You know, it's just the way God works. He wants to move us through the process because he has appointed us to that that end. And as we experience it, he'll move us a hundred million different ways. But it's always... At the center of it, it's always the same confession of the same Lord. And our heart is moved so that then we speak. It can't happen any other way, right? I mean, you don't speak and then later think about it. You, you know, well, I do all the time. But I'm saying, in terms of faith, it doesn't work that way. You believe it, and then that's what makes you speak it. And yes, they can be very close together, or they can be weeks apart, but it's all the Lord either way. So this is Peter's confession moment. And I like to believe that Peter's caught off guard even as he does it. That after it's said, he's like, Wow. I guess I'm on, I'm on record now. <laughs> you know, I've said it. There you go. I've said it. And Jesus affirms it. And more than that, he affirms the leadership role that Peter has now inadvertently assumed. Verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. All right, look, maybe this is no surprise to you when I say this, but a whole lot has been made of Jesus' statement here, and I suspect you are probably aware of some of the controversy that attaches to it. For example, the Catholic Church teaches 
that the Pope is the highest representative of Christ on earth, and they would point to this statement as evidence that Jesus established the papacy through Peter. And those claims are, to put it kindly, revisionist history, and they are obviously self-serving, and they are completely unsupported by the text. But Protestants, to be fair, can run too far in the opposite direction on this issue by unfairly diminishing Peter's importance as a leader in the early church. And the truth actually lies somewhere between those two extremes. And the text makes that clear here as well. That is, this is not the beginning of the papacy, and Peter was not the first pope, but that does not mean Peter did not have the prominent role of leadership in the early church, as we know that he did. So, in speaking to Peter, Jesus says, he's going to build this rock, notice, this, the rock of the church. He's going to build it upon what? This rock, not you. That makes clear that he's speaking about something other than Peter specifically, that there's something bigger than Peter in play here. But on the other hand, in verse 19, Jesus does say plainly that Peter will have a special role in the early church, leading it. He will have keys to the kingdom. And so in some way, Peter's leadership will connect, as it were, heaven's intentions with events on earth in the church. And those two statements, the ones that he just made there concerning Peter, are fundamentally important. They are actually a turning point in Matthew's Gospel. And if we're going to fully appreciate what's going on in this moment, we have to look at both of those statements carefully. And with the time we have tonight, we only look at the first tonight. We look at the second next week. The ones regarding the statement regarding the keys of the kingdom. That's next week. But in his first statement, Jesus begins by changing Peter's name from Simon to Peter. Now, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us because throughout the gospel, Matthew's been calling him Peter. Well, that's because that's the name that he eventually ends up with. But this is actually the moment where his name became Peter. Before this, his name was Simon. Prior to this moment, now think about that, that's for two years of the three, two of the three years of ministry, he's been called Simon. Now, though, his name is being changed to Peter. And Matthew, as he writes this, he's writing in Greek. And so knowing what the Greek words are here in this case matters because the Greek word here that he uses for rock when he says, your name will be Peter, that's Petros in Greek, which is the name rock or the word rock. And it means a rock in in sort of the small sense of rock, a small stone, something you could pick up and hold in your hand. Later in that sentence when he says, on this rock I will build the church, it's a play on words because he Matthew now gives us a different Greek word, Petros which means a cliff. So those two words are different. In fact, they're different genders. One's masculine, one's uh, uh, feminine. So what that would tell you is there's no intention here to think that this is the same thing. Further proof that he was not saying Peter would be the first among many popes or any such thing. He says, Peter or Simon, your name is now Rock, or as we would say, Rocky. No, literally. I mean, it's like a pet name, pet rock name. He says, Rocky, but then he says, and upon this cliff... I build my church. So there's clearly a distinction being made. Nevertheless, something about what Peter did in his stepping forward to confess is an example that Jesus wants to use as for the church overall. So here's the way I would say it, based on the words that were used. Peter was like a chip off the block, a small stone in what he did, compared to a cliff in which Jesus is going to work within the church. And the relationship is especially easy to see when you look at how Peter writes about himself and about us in his own writings. Let me just read a small passage out of 1 Peter 2. In verse 4, 
He says, we come to Jesus as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. And then he says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. In other words... Peter says that Jesus starts this process. He is the foundation, the cornerstone, the rock on which everything is going to be built. And then we take a place with him in this work as little stones, built on him, as it were. Giving ourselves up as spiritual sacrifices for this house that God is building called the church. And I have to think that when Peter wrote those words, he might have been thinking back to the moment at Caesarea Philippi and what Jesus said about him, that he would be this rock, this stone, And upon a cliff, Jesus would build his church. The cliff being, metaphorically, a bunch of little Peters all on top of one another. Peter being the very first, though, to join that house. To say what was said. To do what we all must do as well. And friends, if the cornerstone is not sound, if it's not laid properly, nothing else can be built on it that's worth anything. So Jesus has to be the start of everything. He is our cornerstone. Something sure and strong and unbreakable and true. And Peter says that that stone was rejected in his day by the Jewish builders, and yet we will be built upon it as living stones. What he's saying is this. What he came to recognize is this. Jesus was embarking on a new construction project, one that did not build on top of prior work. That is, we are going to construct something called the church. And Peter's confession is the same way that Jesus will build the rest of the church. What he did, and it's not enough to say that his confession is the rock. That's sometimes how this is said. That's not enough. Yes, the confession's a piece of it. But it's just a piece of it. Who revealed it to him? The Father. So it's the Father's revelation of Jesus as Messiah and God, which prompts in the heart a confession of faith. That is the rock. That's what Christ is building. A house of people that have had that experience. All of it. Peter being the first example of it. It's like Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone, let's put the first rock on top of me, Peter. And then pile on. And we all build with him in the same way that Peter began. Not because of Peter. Not with Peter ruling over us. Joining Peter. As Peter did. And the Father will reveal to each person as he sees fit the truth of Christ in a moment that the Spirit participates in, prompting that person's heart to change, and that truth burning inside them will eventually find its way out in a moment of confession, prompted by something. And in that moment, salvation arrives. And when that person has finished that process by the, by the grace of God, they have now become part of something larger than themselves, They have become a stone stacked upon a history of such stones in the building of the church as Christ is appointed. We're all a part of that. Jesus says he builds his church through this process. This is how it's going to happen. This, friends, is the very first time the word church is used in the New Testament. And, interestingly, it's one of only two times it's used in all the Gospels. In fact, Mark, Luke, and John never use the word church at all which just shows you how remarkable this concept was. In the Greek, it's the word ekklesia, and it comes from two words, ek, and klesia, 
Ek means out of or of, and klesia means invited guests. So it's those of invited guests, so those who've been called out to be invited guests. Jesus gives us this new term. You know why he gives you a new term for what we are? Because there was no precedent. There was nothing else to call it. We're not Israel. We're not rabbis. We're not part of Pharisaic Judaism. What are we? Ecclesia. Called out from those things. Called out from the world. Invited into something by the will of the Father. We are the church. We are the ones that now turn around and do that inviting on behalf of the Father, though it's still him working through us, of course. And when those that are like us respond in faith, the house just gets bigger. Called out of darkness into the light. Called out of condemnation and into mercy and forgiveness. It's a, it's a change in everything. We follow in Peter's footsteps. We become another brick in the wall. Apologies to Pink Floyd. And another living stone in the church. Jesus is telling Peter and his disciples, that is what this whole thing is about. It's about building a church, a body of people who are shared or united rather by a shared faith. Look, that's, that's the point of the church. I know we have all the other things we like to do, right? If you, but, but you cannot leave behind the mission, the point of it all. For if you do, there's no reason for it anymore. Because the other stuff doesn't matter if it's not about souls coming to know Christ. Because if you ever find yourself doing church, in some sense, and you wake up one moment and you realize that it's been a long time since you've talked about Jesus, stop whatever you're doing. Back up, and remember your focus is not about programs or building or money or growth or image or any such thing. And here's something that may surprise you, by the way. Neither is it about prayer or worship or study or fellowship. Those are all means to a greater end. And the end is Jesus Christ. Right? There are people who study and they're not believers. There are people who pray and they're not believers. There's people who sing worship songs. They're not believers. If they don't become a believer through the process, or let's say it this way, if hearts aren't being moved into faith, then all the other stuff's meaningless. Right? I mean, we know this. I know. But every time you have a conversation with an unbeliever about church, your emphasis in that respect needs to remain on Christ and his salvation. Not necessarily every word you say, but it can't be outside the conversation. And every time someone enters this place, the sense that they should get is that this is a place of living stones set on a cornerstone that we keep coming back to over and over again in what we say, how we think, what we do. And if possible, we want to always and forever live in the moment that Peter established by example. That is, we are forever declaring by our words and our actions that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. And it just keeps being the main point of why we do this. There is no other name under heaven that has been given by which men would, shall be saved or must be saved. So what is lesson number one? If these guys are going to do the job of the kingdom program, you've got to get lesson number one right or there's no lesson number two. And what is lesson number one? Jesus is God. And we can't ever allow the life that we have as the body of Christ to forget that or to put any priority above that. That is the declaration of it. The holding true to it, the declaration of it. As he says to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, that's your first love, don't leave it. Next week you get to look at number two. And lesson number two was... Can they walk the walk Jesus walked in serving him according to the the terms that he established? Can they represent him? That'll be the second comments he makes to Peter next week, and we'll come back there. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that you will just keep our hearts on, on Christ at all times.
Just not let us become so full of ourselves and all that we do here, or just busy, or just distracted, that we suddenly forget why we came together in the first place. Let our church be a name that puts Jesus above every other. Let our church be a, a, a place, rather, that puts Jesus first, puts our hearts in, in order behind him and his goals and will and not substituting our own for his. Let our prayers be lifting men up and women up again to, to know Christ. Let our service be unto Christ. Let our study be of Christ. And when we offer words of comfort or wisdom or counsel when we do service to one another, Father, when we fellowship and enjoy each other's company, let our minds and our hearts forever be attentive to the will of Christ in those things so that he is always first in our hearts and on our minds. So that our confession would not be past or history, but be present and reality for us at every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.